In the summer of 2013, I was a seminary student taking a class called Theology of the Early Eastern Fathers. This class was thick. I mean, it was intense as we poured over ancient writings of these ancient theologians and their very nuanced takes on Scripture. The main point of the class was the doctrine of the Trinity. And on the very first day, the professor comes out just firing questions at us, asking us to describe the essence and characteristics of the Trinity. Now, something I've noticed about myself is that when I'm explaining a complex idea or topic, I tend to circle around and in on an answer. Now, what I mean is that I jump out there, just start talking using more general terminology. And then, as I keep talking, I try to hone in on the more precise language that I want to use. Does anyone else do this? So as I'm attempting to explain the nature of the Trinity to this professor and a class full of students, I just jump right out there, right? I start talking and trying out different theological words that I think would sound good for a question like that. So, you know, I'm using phrases like, the nature of Christ. I mean, that sounds like a really good theological phrase, right? The nature of Christ. I mean, come on. That sounds super smart. And my professor was from Scotland and had this amazing accent, which was incredible to listen to uh, during lectures, but actually made getting called a heretic in front of my peers a little bit worse. Just the one? He asked with a raised eyebrow. I'm sorry. I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. Just the one nature of Christ? Uh, yeah, sure. I still wasn't following. So you would say you disagree in principle with the Council of Chalcedon, who in 451 AD acknowledged in Christ Jesus two natures, human and divine, unconfused, unchangeable, indivisible, and inseparable. The difference of the natures being in no way removed by the union, but rather preserved, concurring both into one person and one hypostasis. Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly what I've always believed. Now, luckily, I wasn't the only person in that first class who committed heresy. But the good news is, I came out of that entire course with a much better grasp of the doctrine of the Trinity. Or so I thought. Rewind to just earlier this very calendar year. Now, my son, who is four, has a lot of really good questions about God. Sometimes they're a little too good. Was the cross bigger than God? He asked me one day. Oh, good, I thought. This one's a softball. No, of course the cross isn't bigger than God, I explained. Then how did they get God up on the cross? Uh, Not as easy as I thought. Well, I explained, they didn't put God on the cross. They, they put Jesus on the cross. You know exactly what's coming, don't you? But you said Jesus was God. 
And there it was. Now, these are amusing stories, but they reveal a real and legitimate concern here, don't they? It's really hard to wrap our minds around this idea of the Trinity. If we're being honest, at times the Trinity seems confusing at best and downright contradictory at worst. Now, how do we understand and conceptualize this idea, this mysterious idea of the three in one? How do we know who we're even praying to? How could we possibly explain this to someone who doesn't even believe in God in the first place? Or to our four-year-old kids? Now, if you're saying to yourself right now, yeah, that's okay. I don't really think it's that big of a deal if I understand the Trinity. This series is for you. If you're saying to yourself, what's the Trinity? Yeah, this series is most definitely for you. And if you're yawning and or thinking about going into the other room to grab a snack in the hopes that by the time you get back, I'll be talking about something other than the Trinity, this series is for you too. Because at the end of these next two weeks, my prayer is that we will not see the Trinity as some oddity or source of confusion but rather as something to be delighted in. I pray that we will not see the Trinity as a cause of problems, but rather as a solution. And I pray we will not be bored or indifferent about the Trinity, but we would be moved to worship the triune God who is the source of all true joy and peace and hope in this world. As we move toward these goals, it's important to keep in mind that mere knowledge of God and the Trinity is just a step toward the more beautiful and meaningful goals of loving God, delighting in God, adoring God. These are the things that we'll be focusing on most of all in this very short series. However, knowing and understanding God is a step toward this goal. So while the point of the series is not just that we can explain the Trinity so that our Scottish professors won't point out our heresies, we do need some common ground and foundational understanding to start from. So let's begin with three fairly simple, easy-to-remember statements that will help us begin to conceptualize the Trinity. Statement one, there is one God. Two, God is three persons, and three, each person is fully God. Let's do those again. One, there is one God. Two, God is three persons, and three, each person is fully God. Now let's dive into each of those a little bit deeper. First, statement one, there is one God. Now, there are a lot of Bible verses to back up this statement. The most famous one being Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, as it's called, a very foundational creed of the ancient Hebrew people going all the way back to the time of Moses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. There are no other gods but Yahweh. The verse is saying, only the Lord, Yahweh, is God. 
it's important to keep in mind that this understanding of God was not only foundational in the ancient Hebrew faith. It was absolutely revolutionary and unique. All other surrounding people groups, and as far as we can tell, all other groups around the entire world at that time were worshiping multiple deities. But when God revealed himself to the ancient Hebrew people, he gave them this brand new picture of the one God who created and ruled and took care of the entire universe. Zechariah 14.9 puts this quite clearly. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So, the ancient Hebrews were radically monotheistic. But what about the New Testament writers? What about Christians? Those who worshipped Jesus? Didn't this cause an issue for them? Almost all the earliest Christians were Jewish. Let's look at how Paul puts this in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is through all and over all and in all. Let's not overlook how huge this is. This statement was written by a man who spent most of his life urging people, including Jews, to pray to Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, and in all other respects to consider Jesus to be God. And yet, he says, there is one Lord, one God and Father of all. And this is the same in all other early Christian writings that we have. This is a people for whom monotheism and the worship of only the one God was not only well-established and foundational to their religion and their identity, but who followed laws where worshiping any other gods was punishable by death. The New Testament writers are extremely adamant in warning people not to pray to idols, not to worship idols. And yet, they are also adamant in holding up Jesus as God. Now, to understand this distinction, we'll need the second of our three statements. Statement two, God is three persons. What I don't want us to do is to get really hung up on the use of this term persons here. It's not attempting to describe Father and Son and Holy Spirit as human beings. Only Jesus, the Son, took on humanness. Many of the early, many of the early Christians actually struggled with this word and whether it accurately described what it was attempting to describe. But in the end, nearly everyone agreed that A, it would be almost impossible to come up with a word that accurately depicted and could behold the, the mystery of God's existence in this way. And B, short of coming up with an entirely new word, which would have its own set of problems, this one seemed to work as well as any other. So they went with it. 
Now for the first bit of biblical evidence of this statement that God is three persons, let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. Have you ever noticed that God says a really strange and wonderful thing in that chapter? As God is creating people, the text in verse 26 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Have you ever caught that before? God uses first person plural pronouns here. Let us make humans in our image after our own likeness. This would have been a really shocking statement for a radically, aggressively monotheistic people to have at the very beginning of their scriptures. I've heard some wonder if possibly God could have been talking to angels when he said this. But that explanation doesn't hold up. Because nowhere else in scripture is there any indication that humans were created in the image of angels or that angels participated in any way in the creation of humans. Whether or not the human author of this passage understood it precisely, the best explanation for the use of us and our in this passage is that the conversation was taking place between the persons of the Trinity. Let's do another really fun Old Testament one. So the most common, most utilized name for God throughout the Old Testament is Elohim. Anytime that you see the word God in your English Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is most often being translated is the word Elohim. Now here's the crazy thing about the word Elohim. It is a plural word. If you translated it precisely and directly, it would actually be God's. (laughs) And yet, it always, always uses singular verb agreement. In other words, the text never says Elohim say or Elohim are, which would be grammatically correct, but instead always says Elohim is or Elohim says, which is so grammatically incorrect, it would make you physically cringe if you were a speaker of ancient Hebrew. Now, wouldn't this seem odd to this staunchly monotheistic people group that when God gave them a name he wanted them to call him, he gave them a plural name. But when we get to the New Testament, everything begins to come into focus. These quirky little mysteries are solved. And the solution to the mysteries is that God is triune, three persons in one essence. Let's go to the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here, we very clearly have Father and Son and Spirit 
all participating in the very same scene together. So if anyone ever says, how do you know they're not really the same person? Have you ever seen them in the same place at the same time? Now we can say, yes, in a way we have. Jesus also, when giving his great commission to his disciples, holds up the Trinity as the way to understand God. In Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice, Jesus says it's the one name, but yet he gives us three names. Father, Son, and Spirit. One name, God's name, but three persons making up that one essence of God. Finally, let's look at statement three. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, is fully God. Now, what's important here is that we understand that each person of the Trinity is not one-third of the whole God. We don't have a situation where alone each person represents only one-third of the entire God. But when they come together, they form the whole thing, like Voltron or Captain Planet or something. The Father is fully God. Christ, the Son, is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Each has the being, the essence the full weight of glory, sovereignty, and holiness of God. Each is to be worshipped and adored as God. Another key point to make here is that the persons of the Trinity have been fully God eternally. We didn't start with God the Father being the only God, and then Jesus came into existence, and then the Holy Spirit came into existence. All three persons have always existed together. As John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and he's referring there to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So again, to summarize our three statements to understanding and remembering the Trinity. One, there is one God. Two, God is three persons. And three, each person is fully and eternally God. Now, the question that you might be and probably should be asking is why does this really matter Does this actually affect my life in any kind of meaningful way? And as we journey through these next two weeks, my hope is for us to see that the Trinity is not only what makes Christianity unique, but it is also what makes it beautiful and compelling. Our relationship with God as individuals and as the church will be deeper, richer, and more fruitful if we see and know God as Trinity. We will understand not only God better, but also ourselves 
and certainly what it means that God loves us. How will we do that? Let's use the doctrine of the Trinity to explore the two most important things that God has ever done for us and with us. Creation and salvation. And today we'll start with the first of those. In the time that we have left, we will dive into the Trinity and creation. Let's start with some real talk. If you go around talking about the Trinity in certain circles today, you will be treated as a complete lunatic or as an idiot. Why is that? Secular society has somehow created a situation in which perceiving the world in this way is seen as as unreasonable or as just plain stupid. But this could not be further from the actual truth. The Trinity is actually the one thing that makes sense of this sometimes nonsensical-seeming world. It is the wisdom. It is the reason that orders everything in creation. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, who I think most people would agree is a pretty good thinker, he had a really great question about God and creation. Aristotle asked, How can God be eternally and essentially good when goodness requires an object or other? Do you follow what he's getting at here? In Aristotle's view, there would be no way for me, for example, to completely isolate myself from all people and all things and all responsibilities and all emotions and still be called good because goodness is defined by my interaction with people and things and responsibilities and emotions. A thing by itself cannot be good without something else to give its goodness to. And this was a serious problem for God in Aristotle's mind because there had to be a time before God had created the universe and the world and people and things and responsibilities and emotions. So then there must have been a time before God was good. God could not have been eternally good under those circumstances. Now, as Christians, we have been given the answer to this conundrum by God. God is eternally good because of the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have always coexisted in a relationship of perfect, beautiful love for one another. Thus, God's goodness reflected in that incredible display of love has always existed and been on perfect display. Now again, we should be asking the question, so what does that mean for us? Let's answer that with three main points. First, creation itself was not necessary for God or for his glory. In the Trinity, God 
already had experienced perfect, fulfilling love and fellowship. Thus, our existence came out of an overflow, an abundance of his love and glory. And we are then called to enter into that relationship and fellowship ourselves. Second, that means that as God's created child, you were not needed. You were wanted. Now this sanctuary is completely empty. And I cannot see any of your faces at home. But if I could, I imagine I might be seeing some furrowed brows right now. Did he just say we weren't needed? Is that really a good thing? Yes, it is a good thing. Have you ever been contacted to have lunch with an old friend that you haven't seen in years and years? And you are super excited to meet up with this friend and catch up on old times and share laughs and memories together. But then when you arrive at the restaurant, you realize that the friend really only invited you to use you as a reference or as some kind of business opportunity. That is the difference between being needed and being wanted. When you're needed, you're an object, a means to a selfish end for the other party. But when you're wanted, the relationship actually flows in your direction. You are loved. You are desired for your own sake. That's how it is with God and us. Is it an amazing, wonderful thing to desire to bring honor and glory to God? Yes, of course. But God didn't create us because he was lacking those things and needed us to fulfill them. We are loved. We are desired because we are God's creation. But that can only be true with a triune God. Finally, this brings us to our third and final point. We were created to love like God. Because the Trinity is an eternal relationship of perfect, self-giving love, this means that God is, in essence, an outward-facing God. His very nature is characterized by love for others. The Father's love for Son and Spirit was so immense that he desired to share that outward love with others, with us as his created children. And being created in the likeness of God and constantly being transformed into the likeness of Christ means that we have generosity and radiant, self-giving love built into our very beings. Why? Why should we be loving and kind to other people that we see around us in this world? Have you ever noticed that secular atheists and agnostics, they struggle to form a truly foundational answer to that question? It's the right thing to do. But why? So that we can increase one another's value and experience in this world. But why? And it's difficult to dig much deeper than that. 
And even someone who believes in a unipersonal God would struggle to answer that question. But the Trinity gives us the deepest, most meaningful answer possible. Because the triune God is by nature loving. And he created us to embody and to reflect that love everywhere. If we believe that being good to one another, that loving each other is something to be aspired to in this life, and I hope we do, the Trinity is the only good, consistent, beautiful explanation as to why. Let's return one last time to the recurring question of today's message. What effect does knowing and loving God as Trinity really have on us? The next time that you are lying on your back, looking up at the stars, speckled across a canvas of jet black sky, I hope you will consider again this question. I hope you'll remember the words of Psalm 19, which say, the heavens declare the glory of God, and that you will see that God has not just merely placed a star here and there in the sky, but has lavished the heavens with billions upon billions of them. I hope you will see this incredible excess, this overwhelming splendor for what it is, an exploding overflow of the loving generosity of God. Those stars and the sun and the moon and the earth and the mountains and oceans and clouds and everything we see around us in this world, they all exist because the Father's love for the Son and Spirit could not be contained And even better yet, you exist for the very same reason. And as we walk around this world, seeing God's creation and meeting person after person, I hope that we will begin to not just see those things but instead we would begin to see the triune God who is behind them and within them. The joy behind all joy, the beauty behind all beauty, the wonder behind all wonder, and yes, the love behind all love. Amen.